Do you think he is underestimating the hurdles of doing KYC AML on a global scale? I mean, if I'm allowed to answer that with a single word, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to The Laundry, the podcast connecting AML, compliance and financial crime to the real world. I'm your host, Marit, CEO of Strice, and in this episode, we are laying out what Elon Musk needs to know about AML compliance. The world's richest man and owner of X, or Twitter for those with longer memories, has announced his plan to turn the social media platform into an everything app that is also the center of someone's entire financial life. Now Musk has reiterated plans to compete with the likes of PayPal, Visa, even banks by offering products and services that will, quote, reshape how we connect, communicate and transact. And we don't have anything like WeChat. In China, you can, like live on WeChat, mm-hmm. basically. You do payments, you do everything. It's like, it's great. WeChat's kick-ass. And we don't have anything like WeChat outside of China. So how about if we just copy WeChat? He wants it to be the everything app, but he has also made it a place that's a lot more um, for conservative speech. But a conservative media organization and an everything app are two different things. It's not going to be everything for all people if it's on one side or the other. It seems like the Taliban loves Elon Musk and Twitter. A senior Taliban leader claims that Twitter's freedom of speech and credibility puts it above other social media platforms. The reason why the Taliban leader prefers Twitter over Meta is quite straightforward. Facebook has labeled the Taliban as a tier one designated terrorist organization according to their policies. The group does have a fairly free hand in expressing itself on Twitter. If if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. Go f*** yourself. Is that clear? But while Elon Musk may be one of the original founders of PayPal, known as the PayPal Mafia, there is a lot which is needed to be worked out from a compliance perspective when turning a social media site into a financial tool capable of replacing the banking system. Oh, and he has also set the Twitter team the deadline of the end of 2024 to get it done. No biggie. So in today's episode, we discuss... What are Elon Musk's big plans with Twitter when it comes to financial services? And how many compliance hurdles are there to jump to get there? And can social media make the move from posting to paying? To dive into this topic, I'm here with Jason Mikula, publisher of Fintech Business Weekly. Welcome to The Laundry, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. What should our listeners know about you, your background and Fintech Business Weekly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the relevant information they should know, I am not necessarily a deep expert on AML specifically, but more the financial services landscape broadly. You know, my background is 10 plus years in consumer credit, consumer lending, both in the US and the UK. Uh, And now I serve as an advisor and consultant, both to established banks, as well as early stage fintechs. And I write and publish Uh, the Fintech Business Weekly newsletter that you mentioned. Thanks for that intro. Let's start by looking at the big plans surrounding Twitter. So Musk wants to be at the center of people's financial lives. And according to an audio of an internal Twitter meeting that The Verge obtained, Musk said, if it involves money, it will be on our platform. I'm talking about like, you won't need a bank account even. What is he talking about here? 
Uh, I mean, I think anyone who hazards a guess as to what Musk is talking about is at uh, great risk of being being wrong. But I mean, it, you know, in this case, it really does seem that the direction of travel is towards bolting on an entire set of financial services features that, at least taking Musk at face value, are designed to replace a user's existing you know, banking or, or financial services relationships, right? So, you know, the first one that we've heard sort of the most about and that that I guess intuitively makes a little bit more sense is peer-to-peer payments. But he also seems to be intimating at replacing these other core capabilities that that somebody looks to a a bank or a financial institution for. And when we think of, you know, what are the baseline features that a bank service provides to somebody, you can pretty much break them down into holding money, moving money, and investing slash borrowing money, right? So the peer-to-peer component perhaps makes a little more sense given the nature of what Twitter is, and frankly, is, is a little bit less complicated from a legal and regulatory licensing standpoint. These other features that he's he's hinting at, you know, holding somebody's money, enabling them to spend it, uh, enabling them perhaps to invest it, you know, are substantially more complicated. And while it varies by jurisdiction, you know, in the United States at least, typically would require partnering with a bank or, or a licensed broker dealer to deliver a lot of these capabilities. And you know, and given his track record so far, uh, I don't imagine that that's going to be smooth smooth sailing process for him. Yeah. So let's say he's eyeing this pair to pair payment first. How will he get there? What is the playbook or the steps that he has to do to get pair-to-pair payment off the ground? Yeah, so that's a great question, right? And in the piece that has already garnered a significant amount of media attention are these these MTLs uh, or money transmission licenses, which uh, the company has gone about beginning to acquire. So, for those who are less familiar, that is a state-issued license that non-bank companies need to acquire in each state they plan to operate where they want to offer certain kinds of regulated services, including, as the name suggests, money transmission. Right. So if you are not a bank and you want to facilitate the, the movement of money, you need to hold this license essentially in every state that you plan on operating. I forget Montana or one state actually doesn't have a requirement to hold an MTL. So, I mean, I think the the easiest comparison for people who are less familiar with the space, uh, there's really two really good examples, right? Western Union is the old classic example of a money transmitter that is not a bank that functions to do remittances, obviously very sort of old school, physical, uh, in person. Uh, and you know Venmo or Cash App being examples of what I imagine Musk would look to emulate by adding a peer-to-peer payment capability to Twitter. I mean, something that's important to remember, even if Musk goes about obtaining MTLs in every state Twitter plans to operate and registering with FinCEN as a money services business, which I believe they already have, he still needs, you know, under the hood, he still needs bank partners to actually operationalize this, right? And users need to be able to have on and off ramps or the ability to add money to the platform or and remove money from the platform, which typically are via debit and or ACA trails in the United States. And 
he needs an entire compliance management system, the appropriate policies and procedures, personnel and systems to ensure compliance with applicable regulation, including anti-money laundering regulation, KYC, Know Your Customer, which which I'm sure we're going to talk about some more. For sure. And uh, let's talk about just onboarding. So it's quite different to open an account in a social media platform versus opening a bank account. And Twitter, they have 368 million monthly active users globally. US alone has more than 50 million users. How would you even retroactively apply the required due diligence processes needed in banking to all of these existing users? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I mean, I don't think there is, uh, in a sense, any way to, to retroactively do that, right? So if, you, if I had to imagine what this would look like in practice, and, and Twitter already has some financial capabilities, right? You can tip creators on the platform. Uh, for users that have more than a certain threshold, I think, of views in a given period, they can earn revenue share from ads that are shown on the platform. So there are already some financial capabilities there. I mean, what this would probably look like is an incremental capability that somebody would need to go through a sign-up process for. So if I log into to Twitter and it's like, hey, you know, do you want to enable this capability? of peer-to-peer payments or some sort of bank account-like functionality, they would need to go through that sign-up process, both from a perspective of accepting any applicable terms and conditions, but more critically, collecting those necessary KYC data points, right? So in the US, uh, there's well, there's always a hodgepodge of regulations, but the critical ones tend to be the BSA, which is the Bank Secrecy Act, and the Patriot Act, which require covered institutions, which would include a money transmitter operating a peer-to-peer payment platform, to have a CIP or a customer identification program. So imagine you know, you're on Twitter. It's like, oh, hey, great. We have this new feature that allows you to send money to your friends or open something that looks like a kind of bank account or a neobank offering, you know, Twitter would need to collect that user's name, address, government identifier, which if a user has an SSN, must be an SSN, and date of birth, if I didn't already say that. So, so I mean, to, to answer your question directly, you know, there is no snapping your fingers and taking all 350 million whatever Twitter users and having them automatically have fulfilled this process. I mean, you would have to retrofit their existing account and, and, and sort of collect those data points. Definitely not. And his vision is to let users send money anywhere in the world, which means that he would need users not just in the US, but in every country to go through this hurdle It's just such a big undertaking. Do you think he is underestimating the hurdles of doing KYC AML on a global scale? I mean, if I'm allowed to answer that with a single word, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, Yes, I think he is either underestimating or, or in typical kind of Elon Musk fashion, taking a very bombastic or, or cavalier approach to the challenge, which, you know, I, I do need to, to step back and, and say, it's like, okay, with the amount of 
success and progress he's made in in other industries, there's always a risk to underestimating him, right? Uh, as far yeah, as definitely. progress with things like SpaceX and Starlink and, of course, Tesla. You know, on the flip side, it's worth pointing out that, that the kinds of, of challenges we are talking about are not I might get uh, I might get comments for this are, are not inherently technology challenges or engineering challenges in the way that you know launching a rocket into space or designing a battery that lasts longer are are physical real world engineering challenges you know the kinds of things we're discussing I guess you could try to make the case that they are software engineering challenges but fundamentally they are compliance and control challenges. And if there's something that Elon Musk has shown, to be frank, that he's shown disdain for, it's following the rules. And if there's one thing that financial regulators, in my experience, dislike, is when companies they oversee, you know, sort of make a a, a point of not following the rules. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's their job as well. So yeah, very good point. So it could turn out that sending people to Mars is actually easier than building up a retroactively fitting 300 users into a global KYC AML uh, process. And Elon has been making headlines by slashing a lot of cost and staff at X or at Twitter and in AML and KYC, one of the things we've definitely seen is that headcounts tend to increase. So he's so focused on cutting cost. How will he pay for all of the AML KYC compliance that's required? How do you think he thinks about that? Again, I, I would I would very much uh, avoid trying to get inside Elon Musk's head because it seems like a scary place. Uh, <laughs> I mean, based on you know recent news reports with how they're handling essentially a, a subset of what we're talking about, and I'm referencing specifically sanctions compliance, which is a bit distinct from AML, but it, generally people sort of lump these things together. It, it doesn't appear like they're fulfilling on those obligations. And I'm referring to a recent report from the Tech Transparency Project that found that members of sanction groups like Hezbollah were able to get a blue check mark or a verified check on Twitter, despite being on OFAC or other kinds of sanctions lists. And, and I actually am guilty of, of sometimes forgetting that these regulations that we talk about apply not just to financial companies, so banks and, and remittance companies, but actually any company uh, is not supposed to be doing business with somebody that is either individually a sanctioned entity or lives in a comprehensively sanctioned jurisdiction. So, I mean, as far as you know, if, if Twitter seems you know, either incapable or uninterested of even managing to comply with existing sanctions regimes in its existing business, I really struggle to imagine how you know, even at the simpler use case that we're talking about, not that global peer-to-peer money transfer is simple by any means, but even that relatively narrow use case, I struggle to imagine how Twitter would go about achieving the necessary compliance, particularly as you point out, as the company dramatically has reduced its staff. And the typical way 
I would imagine an, an institution would go about doing this is relying on vendors and partners, right? So if you don't have infrastructure in the EU or you don't have infrastructure in Japan to do things like money in, money out, that on and off ramp, and more importantly, verifying users' identities, that KYC process, typically you make use of third-party vendors to do that. But Musk's approach generally speaking or historically speaking, doesn't tend to be one that makes use of third-party vendors versus a sort of do-it-all-yourself, build-it-all-yourself mentality. And that both is a very tall order in financial services, particularly when you're looking at a company, and I presumably a staff at that company, that doesn't have a ton of experience in this space. Your data problem and your workflow problem. Now it isn't your problem. Strice is your ultimate solution to streamline customer due diligence and perpetual KYC, transforming your AML strategy from a manual burden to an automated winner. With AI-centric automation at its heart, Strice fast-tracks your time to revenue. And because we know the future is as uncertain as it is exciting, Strice is modular by design. Prepare for tomorrow's risks and regulations today with flexibility that adopts to whatever the future holds. And the best of all, you experience value from day one. Instant use out of the box. Visit strice.ai and try our live demo today. Back to the show. Just to bring it back to the sanction points, I believe also that two Taliban officers were able to get the blue check mark on Twitter. And um, yeah, and as many people don't know, sanction regulations apply to not only the banks and financial institutions, but all industries. I think maybe it Elon Musk, um, his philosophy falls very much into the Silicon Valley. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to get permission. And This brings us to the next big topic, which is the other social media platforms as well, because while it's easy to talk about Elon Musk at great length, let's look at the wider social media space, because a recent report from Revolut showed that over 60% of UK scams actually originates from meta platforms. So they, Twitter, are not the only ones um, has Meta been too soft on curbing financial crime in general, you think? Uh, <laughs> you're asking me all the easy questions today. <laughs> I, I would split this into two, sort of two different but related questions, right? So one is content and content moderation on Meta. And then the second related question is actual financial services, you know, capabilities or transactions that are taking place on Meta itself versus taking place on a third-party external platform like like a Revolut or, you know, a Cash App or Venmo or anywhere else. The question of of content moderation, which is far above my pay grade, uh, I certainly think it it Meta has done an inadequate job across its platforms. So I'm including you know, Instagram and WhatsApp in there as well, not just you know original Facebook, has done an inadequate job of protecting its users from, from all sorts of harms, including the risk of financial scams. To what degree those, those scams, the actual vector 
that they take place on is on Facebook itself versus you know Facebook serving as a hunting ground, if you will, and then a user you know actually using their existing bank account to push a payment. You know, my sense is that the actual execution of this fraud tends to take place outside of Meta's different applications. That that's not to absolve in any way Meta of you know the responsibility that it has or should have to protect users, particularly vulnerable users. Uh, so older uh, older individuals, teenagers, kids, et cetera, from experiencing harms on on the different platforms that they run. Um, I will say, and, and I'm curious to hear your your opinion on this as well, you know it does sort of give me pause to the idea that Meta wants to push you know like like what Elon is proposing at Twitter, you know has long wanted to push further into embedding financial services inside of Meta's various applications. You know, they've they've met, I would say, limited success with that, particularly in the US and other Western markets. But they have had some success in in various regions embedding payments or peer-to-peer payments in things like WhatsApp. And, you know, given the relatively lax approach to protecting their users just in general from any kind of content, uh, it does make me sort of question whether or not they're going to have the right capabilities and the right mindset in place to protect users of these sort of specific financial capabilities that they're looking to develop. My perspective is that if they go down more that financial route, you would assume that the regulators would come in and put much more compliance on top of them. And if they were to follow that, which we assume that they hopefully would if they got regulated, then that would have a knock-on effect and would have less fake accounts, maybe less harmful content. So one could kind of have an optimistic outlook on it and hope that compliance will actually better content moderation as well. But that will be left to see. And I also think if you are meta and they just posted financial results, which were really good, like... Are they really motivated, incentivized to, oh, let's just put on another huge budget line item, which is AML KYC compliance? And I don't know if that's really something that they would want to do. So I'm also very interested to know, like, are they spending a lot of money on lobbying not to come into the claws of the regulators and these kinds of things? What do you think there? Well, it's also, you know, there are questions about whether the existing compliance regulatory framework is sort of fit for purpose in in the era in which we live now right in I can't believe I'm playing devil's advocate and kind of defending <laughs> defending meta here but it, it is certainly possible to be in line with the letter of the law and the letter of regulation while still leaving your users you know quite exposed and I think you do see that in other corners of the more traditional financial services ecosystem you know the best example being Zelle which is the bank consortium owned and operated instant you can put a little asterisk because it's like mostly instant but kind of not sometimes but it is um, payment mechanism that has become a major vector for authorized push payment fraud and you know while there has been some progress 
from legislators and from regulators essentially pressuring banks to be a little more generous about reimbursing their customers who've been victims of fraud, you know, understandably from the bank's perspective, they haven't wanted to do this because they're saying the way that a fraudulent transaction is defined in uh, in the US example, that would be the EFTA, the Electronic Funds Transfer Act, and it's implementing regulation Reg E, it, there's a difference between was the transaction authorized or unauthorized. So did somebody just debit my account that I didn't give permission to versus did somebody trick me into sending that money? And so you do have this gap where because the historic way payment systems worked and the corresponding legislation regulation was built around that, that in a lot of cases, payment platforms, whether it's Cash App and Venmo and Zelle, or whether it's you know Meta or, or a hypothetical you know Twitter, don't necessarily have regulatory liability to reimburse their customers for fraud, depending on exactly what, what the circumstances are. And not to sound as uh, completely cynical, but until the costs are borne by whoever's providing the service, whether it's Meta or Twitter or Bank of America or Chase or whoever, until they actually have to bear the costs of finding a solution, you know, they tend to be happy to just let the user eat the expense. Once you say, hey, Barclays, Lloyd's, you have to reimburse users for this, they tend to be pretty quick at figuring out crafty ways to help tamp down on those kind of fraud problems. Yeah, it's different in different jurisdictions. But here in Norway, I spoke to a, a bank recently, and it was just back of the envelope kind of calculations. But he was saying like, oh, we're losing more on fraud than we are on like credit losses because they reimburse a lot of uh, fraud victims. So, but yeah, it's just crazy how many clever methods that are being used to actually defraud people. And it's like playing whack-a-mole. But I also think that you touched upon something important, which is, are we stopping financial crime or are we just doing checkbox compliance, which are two very different things. And for me, coming from the like tech industry, where it's very, you know, everyone is so open to share about their mistakes or this is not working well, we failed here and here, these are our things that didn't work and here's how we fixed it. You can, there's so many videos and blog posts and books, you know, all the resources. But in the financial world, there is no incentive to be hey, we are very much struggling with our sanctions program right now. We don't. Re- we have such a bad hit rate. You know, a new sanction package was implemented. We are really at loss here of what to do. You can't really go out and say that because then the regulators would come the next day and be like, fine you or and someone will lose their job. I just wish the industry was more open to sharing what's not working. But at the same time, I do respect that the re- regulator's job is to kind of hold financial institutions at the air and hold them accountable as well. But that is a very tricky dynamic, uh, I found. And then in addition, of course, technology advances happen so more, much more rapidly than regulatory advances. So I don't even know what it would look like in the future, how regulations is, are going to keep up with technology, especially now in the AI era. But maybe we can use Gen AI to kind of 
create new regulations or at least suggestion to it so that the politicians and the regulators can keep up as well. Yeah, I mean, I think your point about the difference between a check-the-box regulatory exercise versus designing systems that actually catch slash discourage financial crime, whether that's fraud, whether that's money laundering, is a really good point. Uh, And to be perfectly honest, it's not one I had a really in-depth understanding of until perhaps a few years ago, right? I mean, you look at something named the Bank Secrecy Act or Patriot Act, and you kind of assume like, oh, well, if a financial provider, whether it's a bank or whether it's Meta or Twitter or whoever, are doing what the law says they should be doing, surely that's written and implemented in a way that means they should be stopping the bad guys, right? And when you actually understand the nuts and bolts of what those regulations call for and the incentives and disincentives for the companies that are implementing them, you know, for a long time, and, and this is still generally the case, you know, if you can show I'm checking the boxes that the legislation and its implementing regulations say I need to check, whether or not it's effective, you're probably fine, right? And, and this generates all sorts of kind of, um, let's say, questionable strategic decisions, which, which might make sense at the individual level while not fulfilling the intention. And I'm thinking of an example there. Uh, I think the term is defensive SAR filing or, or SAR being sus- suspicious activity report, where as a institution, you, know, you have an obligation to file SARs in cer- certain circumstances. But if you file that, it can generate basically a safe harbor that says, well, we reported this to you know, our national FIU, Financial Intelligence Unit in the US, that'd be FinCEN. It's on them now. So as long as I filed the paperwork on this transaction, I don't really have an obligation to stop the transaction. I don't have an obligation to close this person's account. You know, the law says, did you collect their you know, name, date of birth, address? Do you have you know, a risk-based policies and procedures? Uh, are you filing SARS when you need to file SARS? I did everything the law says I have to do, so I shouldn't have, you know, hopefully I'm avoiding any kind of nasty regulatory penalty, even if all of the all this paperwork, all this staff, all this technology isn't actually effective, right? The keyword being effective. And, and what I hope for the sake of preventing financial crime, you know, both the sort of money laundering side as well as the fraud side, is the the ethos, the paradigm needs to shift to one not of measuring box checking, but of measuring efficacy. So, I mean, not that we want to go into a whole world of false positives and true positives and you know what's your hit rate and all that. But if you're throwing all this money, all these resources at the problem, you would hope that you're measuring outcomes and saying, are you actually preventing or catching the things that you're supposed to be preventing or catching? It's funny you should mention SAR filing in FYU because on Tuesday, I actually had the head of the Norwegian FYU and head of AML in Norway's largest bank right here in the studio and uh, talked about actually all the SAR filings that the bank sent to the FYU and what what happens to those. But we had a very good uh, discussion. But I just also wanted to make a little comment on or more on the 
positive or at least championing that a lot of banks are doing things outside of the checkbox compliance because I spoke to a bank quite recently and they have actually now started hiring a psychologist full-time, building out that capability who can care for fraud victims, especially those for romance and investment fraud. So actually not just breaking it to the customer in like a cold-fashioned banking manner, but actually having people on the ground who can handle that. And I thought that shows that even banking now are building out capabilities that are outside the traditional bank what we think of as banking so i just wanted to to mention that but let's not get into uh, false positives because we would be here another hour and (laughs) the episode is coming to an end but i'm going to do a quick fire question round are you ready jason uh yeah as ready as i'm gonna be so who is more likely to get a bank up and running zuckerberg or musk if i had to answer that question i would say zuckerberg And would you ever bank with Twitter or Facebook? No. (laughs) No, I wouldn't. (laughs) Actually, not me neither. And would you bank with a private messaging app like WhatsApp or Snapchat? No. I could see the utility of like sending payments that way, though. But would I actually use it as a primary sort of banking account? No. And final one, what is the one thing that Elon Musk definitely needs to know about compliance? Uh, I'll try to answer this quickly. I mean, uh, compliance by nature, it's the control side of the business, right? Somehow we've managed to avoid any of of the uh, cliche talking points about dual controls and the three lines of defense and all that. But again, as an external observer, those seem just antithetical to how Elon Musk wants to run a business. He wants all of the control. He doesn't want a chief compliance officer who reports up to his board that has the ability to overrule or constrain the business side. And I I just I can't imagine a scenario where that culture is workable. You know, you can have the best possible written policies and procedures, you can have the best technology, but ultimately a lot of it does come down to culture. And if the tone at the top is one of ignoring the rules, that will flow through to the business units and to the people who are executing your company's strategic plan. And they will think that following the rules is optional. And Elon Musk clearly has demonstrated he thinks following rules does not apply to him. So yes, that is not a quick fire answer to your question, but that that is the best I can do. <laughs> and I also just finished the new Elon Musk documentary, and I completely agree. That book is just full of uh, stories where he absolutely did not follow the rules. But again, it uh, got him to do great things. But that brings this spin of the laundry to an end. Jason, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, If anyone is interested in subscribing to the newsletter, it comes out each week on Sunday. They can find it at fintechbusinessweekly.com. Or you can find me still on Twitter for some reason or uh, or on LinkedIn. Thanks to everyone who is listening. If you have enjoyed this episode, don't forget to go check out the back catalog and follow The Laundry on your podcast platform of choice or subscribe to our YouTube channel. 
To get in touch with the Laundry team, you can comment on the Strice LinkedIn page, my LinkedIn page, or email laundry at strice.ai. Your host for this episode was me, Marit. Our producer was Matthew. Our engineers were Nicholas and Dominic. The Laundry is proudly produced by Strice, the AML automation cloud. Your data problem and your workflow problem. Now it isn't your problem. Visit strice.ai and try our live demo today. See you next time. Money makes a world go round. Yeah, money make a world go round.